You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I want to start our Easter gathering with three different scenes with three different stories. Three different scenes, three different stories. Scene one and story one. The life of a psalmist, desperate and broken by a world. Psalm chapter 10. Here's how the scripture reads. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. And all is scheming. The wicked arrogantly thinks there's no accountability since God does not exist. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments are beyond his sight. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved from generation to generation without calamity. Cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. He waits in ambush near the villages. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize the afflicted. He seizes the afflicted and drags them in his net. And so the afflicted here, the afflicted, he is oppressed and beaten down. The helpless fall because of his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. Rise up, Lord God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted and oppressed. Why is the wicked person despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand account. You will not, God, hold me accountable for the heartlessness, the wickedness of my heart. You have in this scene and in this story a psalmist who takes a look at a world and he's frustrated with it. He's frustrated at the brokenness. He's frustrated that the evil in this world, the heartless in this world, the wicked in this world seem to have the last voice. He's frustrated with this reality that that there are those who are good people, who are even helpless people, who are innocent people, who suffer at the hand of guilty, evil, wicked people. And the psalmist is just at ends with it. He, He cries out to God. And you hear in this psalm two voices, two voices. You hear the voice of the wicked which is arrogant and cynical, that says, I can do what I want to do, there is no God. And then you hear the voice of the helpless, saying, why has God forgotten us? Why is the world this way? And then you notice that there's the absence, the deafening absence of a voice, and the voice is God, and the psalmist cries out to God, and he says, God, where are you? Why do you even let this happen? The brokenness of this world, the suffering in this world, just preying on the innocent. And the psalmist is just desperate. And he's just frustrated. Life is heavy. And it is dark. And he is at best confused. Scene two, story two. One thousand years later, Jesus' disciples are dealing with a Traumatic and quiet weekend. Jesus has been crucified. He's he's dead. They, They gave up everything that they had to follow this Jesus. 
They gave up their homes and they gave up their social standing and their friendships. They gave up their jobs and vocations. They even gave up their religion to follow this Jesus. And, he, and, and now he's just he's dead? I mean, they heard about how he was mocked and they heard about how he was spat upon and they had to hear about it because they had abandoned him. And they heard about how he had to carry his own cross up this long hill called Golgotha and how the nails pierced his hands and pierced his feet with this crown of thorns situated on his head. And, and they heard about the spear of the soldier that was thrust in his side and they heard about the blood that spilled and the water that spilled and, and, they, and he was dead. And so now they're left with Saturday, the deafening quiet of a Saturday. All their hopes, all their dreams gone. Because it was all wrapped up in this Jesus. And he's dead. And I have to believe that maybe Psalm 10 could be their psalm. That maybe they would cry out verse 11 and verse 12. God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. The wicked won. God, how could you let the wicked win? Jesus did nothing but love people. He did nothing but, but touch the people society had not touched. He did nothing but love the people society had pushed along to the side and marginalized. He did nothing but heal the sick and, and heal the wounded and, and give truth to the brokenhearted and give hope. Sure, Jesus said some things that hacked the religious community off sometimes. Sure, Jesus said some truthful things that really hacked humanity off. But, but God, you just, you just let this happen? And what about us? I mean, we sought to follow this because we thought he was what your scripture said he would be, and now he's dead. And they're left in the deafening silence of a Saturday night, dejected disciples. And I have to wonder if maybe Psalm 10 could have been their psalm. Scene 3, story 3. Just a few months ago, I sat in a courtroom just outside of Richmond. I was there to support a friend who was awaiting the just consequence for driving without a license. We didn't know how long we would be there, but we thought it would be a long morning. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom, but they are often cold and quiet. Most of the time, the seating is very uncomfortable, reminding you of old countryside pews. The only voices heard in a courtroom are usually that of the judge, the, the attorneys, the accused, and maybe maybe if necessary, the witnesses. Outside of that, everyone sits in silence in a courtroom. So there I sat in this cold courtroom outside of Richmond, and on this day, the usual voices were heard, the usual pews were found, and the usual temperature was cold. I suppose this experience would not have been too terribly odd had it not been for the young boy sitting there with his father. This young boy couldn't have been much older than five or six. The expression of his face spoke sadness and grief and dejection. His head was held low as if the life had been drawn from his five or six-year-old body. His father was a handsome, clean-cut man with his arms wrapped snugly around his little boy. This young boy was there that day to see his mama. But his mama wasn't there at least not in person. His mama was in jail paying a price for her crime. She had been caught using and distributing methamphetamine. But you could see and hear her through a black and white 32-inch television sitting by the judge's bench. So there this young boy sits in this cold courtroom beside his father 
only able to see his mother through a black and white television in her jail cell with her wrists adorned with handcuffs. Wish you could have seen that. Maybe you have. As I sat, he sat. And as I sat, I confess to you that I grew frustrated. I became frustrated, not at the judge, not at the justice system, not at those. I was, just, I was just frustrated at a world, frustrated at a world where young boys have to sit in cold courtrooms and see their mothers through 32-inch black and white televisions as they sit in jail. Frustrated, I confess, even in my own self-righteousness, I was frustrated at the fact that this, this mom at some point in her life was, a, was an innocent woman, was a daughter of some other dad, was there and then grew up and, and, and bought into the lies of the world and then took on meth. And then I, was, I became frustrated that in her breaking the law, she broke her little boy's heart. I became frustrated that everybody else in that courtroom had a voice, but the voice that mattered and the voice of the little boy. I became frustrated that lives are destroyed by addictions and families are fractured by the brokenness of this world and the selfishness of ourselves and humanity. I became frustrated at the, at the reality that sin often carries a dominant voice in the world, a dominant voice in our very lives, even of us sitting in this room, my life included, and we choose to only sometimes listen to that voice. I, I became frustrated at my own frustration and my own self-righteousness. The very fact that I have a sinful nature that allows me to be frustrated. I became frustrated that humanity is so stained with sin that we offer embrace a greater sense of selfishness. I became frustrated that God has been reduced to someone or for some, something that's visited only on the weekends and not really listened to throughout the week. I became frustrated that young children like this little boy, he had no voice. I mean, this little boy did not ask for a father-son outing to the courtroom that day. This little boy did not choose meth. He didn't choose to give his mom meth. He didn't, he didn't even choose to be born in this world. He didn't even choose his own parents, but yet there he sits with his heart broken. And I have to imagine that maybe if, if I would have met this little boy in, in some sort of church setting and that, that and this little boy might have pointed to Psalm 10 and would have said, that's my psalm, Fred. God, wh- where are you? Why do you let the wicked win? Why do you let the messed up things of this world come in and fracture my innocent little six-year-old life? Where are you? I have to believe that the psalmist, the disciples, and this little boy, and me, and maybe many of you, share the voice of the psalm. And so there's frustration, and there's desperation, and there's weight for the psalmist that one random night, for the disciples that Saturday night. But then something happens. Something happens in this psalm. And something happens that changes everything for this psalmist. In the middle of this complaint, in the middle of this crying out, you find this little three-letter word, this disruptive conjunction word in verse 14. But, 
but you yourself have seen trouble and grief, he says. Observing it in order to take the matter into your own hands. He says in verse 14, the helpless entrust himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless and even the motherless. And then the psalmist in his raw honesty still turns and says, Break the arm of the wicked and evil person. Call his wickedness into account until nothing remains of it. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless. Doing justice there means making right what has been made wrong on all levels, social levels. And he says, and you are will, you will doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that the men of the earth may terrify them no more. It was in this word in verse 14, this but, that things change, that, that it deals honestly with the pain. It doesn't deny the grief. It doesn't deny the hurt. It doesn't deny the complaint. It just turns the psalmist's attention to something greater, and he remembers hope. And it's almost as if in this word he finds the courage to turn back to a greater reality, to turn to a God who actually isn't just merely silent. This disruptive conjunction, this word but, turns everything around. And I have to think that the disciples, 1,000 years later, sitting in that deafening, quiet, Saturday room, would have longed for their own disruptive conjunction. They, they had no therefore. They had no turnaround. They're just left until Mary shows up. See, when Mary shows up, they discover something. John says it like this in John 20, beginning verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. So this was on Sunday morning. Early, while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, talking about John, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple, talking about John, went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb. Stooping down, he looked and saw the linens lying there, yet he did not go in. Then following in, Simon Peter came also, and he entered the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there. The wrapping had been laid on his head, was not lying there. It was folded up in a separate place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, then entered the tomb, saw and believed. For they still did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went home again. And see, I, I got to tell you, I don't quite understand verse 8 and 9, because verse 8 says that then John saw and, and, and he believed, but then right in verse 9 it says, for they still did not understand that Scripture said he must rise from the dead, and so they went home again. And so I don't know if John left with a sense of hope, if, if something had happened there inside of him when he saw the empty tomb, or if they left back all confused. But, but either way, whether, whether they're still living in the psalm, that we read earlier, where they still could identify with the psalmist or that little boy in the classroom, I'll tell you, something changes because then God turns around and gives the greatest disruptive conjunction of it all. Resurrection. And he does this through Mary. And Mary comes in verse 18 and says, I have seen the Lord. 
And she told him what he said to her. And so even in the midst of their own confusion and complaint, God doesn't just bow out. He doesn't just stay silently. He interrupts it with his own disruptive conjunction, something we call resurrection, something we call Easter. It came in and it gave them life where life did not exist. It gave them hope where hopelessness did not exist. And I got to tell you, in Easter 2012, the message then is the message now. Jesus is risen. And because he's risen, there is hope. No matter what psalm you write out before the Lord, no matter where you find yourself, there is a truth that resides in the beauty of Easter. God's greatest disruptive conjunction. There is new strength and new life and new hope to be found because there is found an empty tomb. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, there's a truth of Easter. Easter comes in and disrupts our lives. It can disrupt our pain and it can disrupt our hopelessness. It can disrupt broken marriages. It can disrupt broken relationships. It can disrupt scattered dreams. It can disrupt uh, fractured families. It can disrupt joys and comforts. It can disrupt successes. It can disrupt all of these things because it is meant to disrupt these things because it is meant to turn our hearts and our minds to something greater than we could ever fathom, something greater than even ourselves because of what resurrection actually did. See, because in resurrection, God began something new. In resurrection, God did something to sin that day. He did something to death that day. He did something to hopelessness that day. He took all of the things that separate us from holy God and offered a chance to join it all back together. He began something new. Even for me and for you. And when I saw that little boy in the courtroom, I got to tell you, I just wanted to go and sit beside this little boy. And I know he may not understand a thing that I was saying. I don't know his background, but I just wanted to say to this little boy, little boy, there is hope because Jesus is risen, man. I wanted to just tell him that there's actually, a, there's actually hope. Your hope's not going to be found in, in a merciful judgment from the judge. Sure, it would be beautiful if your mom could, could, could find her way back to you again and you could have your mommy and your daddy, but, but that's a hope that's not going to last. And I wanted to sit down with him and say, you know, the hope is not found in this dad sitting right next to you. That's not where your true hope is found. The hope's not going to be found if you get a beautiful education and go to Harvard. True and living hope isn't going to be found if you find the right job and the right spouse and the right success. I just want to sit beside this, this precious broken little boy. I just wanted to say, your truest hope, the hope that can change everything, the hope that changed the world, the hope that can change your life, is the hope that gave Jesus life from the dead. It's resurrection. It's Easter. And Easter is more than lilies and, and fancy clothes and Easter egg hunts and bunny rabbits and candy. It's about new hope. It's about new life. And I just wanted to share this with this little boy just so he could know the truth. Because see, at that moment, even him right now on this side of the resurrection, he stands like one of those disciples. He is stuck between tragedy and triumph. And the tragedy is he doesn't know the triumph. He doesn't know the triumph of resurrection. He just sits there right in the middle. And the tragedy of that is many of you are feeling the same. And I just want you to know that there's resurrection. That the same power that gave Jesus life from the dead is the same power that can resurrect your heart. 
It's the same power that can resurrect your marriage. It's the same power that can resurrect your hope. It's the same power that can resurrect your purpose. It's a power that is so much more than just something you do on a weekend. It's a power that can rock your world. Because it will change your eternity. See, it's a power only found in Jesus. Because he's the only one who did it. And we often ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the truth of it is, that happens. But the greater truth is the worst thing that could ever happen to the best person that ever walked this earth. And he took it on voluntarily in a cross. But it wasn't powerful enough to keep him dead. Because he was God made flesh. He's Jesus Christ, he's Lord and he's King. See, that's the truth of Easter. And it's a living hope. So Peter, who went to the tomb that day, had to put his two cents worth in the whole picture. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, in his letter, he says this about resurrection. He says, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, the beauty of resurrection, church, is that it is living hope. It is a hope that will not die. Your hope for a new job, you may get it, and it may be a beautiful thing, and you can give God praise for it, but at some point, you're not going to have that job anymore. You're just going to be left with yourself in your own heart. The tragedy of this side of heaven is one day I'm going to sit at either Allison's funeral or she's going to sit at mine. And God gave me this beautiful wife and this beautiful little boy, but there's going to come a point in time in my life that I'm left with just me and my own heart. The tragedy is you can have all of these things in your life, but there's going to come a point in time where you're just left with yourself. And the reality of resurrection and the question for me and for you today and every day, not just Easter, is are you going to embrace resurrection? Because Peter says it's living hope. See, because here's the beauty of what God has done. He has taken a look at me and all of my sinfulness and my life of drugs and my life of sex and my life of living for me. And he's taken you and all of your sinfulness. He's taken all of us. He's taken all of humanity. And he took a look at us and he loved us so much that he didn't just leave us in our own mess. And so he said he did what he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. We couldn't make ourselves right with God. There was nothing we could ever do to make ourselves right before holy God. He's holy. He's good and he's God. And I don't understand a thing he does, but I know he's God and I'm not. And, and he did for us what we could never do. And so he came and he lived the life we could never live. He lived perfection. He showed us what real love looks like, what real peace looks like, what real joy looks like. And he lived it perfectly. And he died a death I should have died because I couldn't live it perfectly. And then he was raised. And he was raised so he could tell me from the throne room of heaven. And so he could tell you from the throne room of heaven that nothing ever has to separate you from God anymore. If you just have faith and belief. If you just trust him with your life. Which is far more than just an event. It's far more than just an Easter Sunday. It's an Easter kind of life. It's a resurrection life. And he comes in and offers the very hope that your heart longs for. 
And he offers the very life you were created for. Life lived in his presence, beginning now and forever. But without Jesus, without resurrection, you and I are like the psalmist with no disruptive conjunction. We are like the disciples on a Saturday night living a life of Saturday nights. We are like the boy in a courtroom constantly seeing our mother through a 32-inch black and white television in jail. We are left with just ourselves and our hopelessness. But the truth of Easter is that it's living hope. It's living hope because when you embrace resurrection, church, when you embrace Easter, this world cannot take the hope from you if you do not give the world permission. Because the world can't take what the world did not give. Jesus gave salvation and he gave life. The world cannot take what Jesus himself has secured. And that's why Peter in this very text says that it's imperishable, it's uncorrupted, it's unfading because it's reserved in heaven for you. It awaits you and it is for you if you just trust and believe. But it's got to be more than just a day. It's got to be more than just a celebration. It's got to be more than just an Easter egg hunt. It's got to be about Jesus because he's king. And so Paul, Peter, Peter goes on and he says in that same, same chapter actually, He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who's called you is holy, you're also to be holy in your conduct, for it's written, be holy because I am holy. See, the truth of resurrection is not only does it give us hope, And not only does it give us life, it should change the way we live. See, the truth of resurrection is that God can indeed resurrect a broken marriage. He can indeed resurrect broken relationships. He can indeed resurrect a broken heart. And He can call me and show me and teach me and give me the new strength and the new courage to love my wife the way I'm supposed to love my wife because, not because I'm a good guy, but because of resurrection. Because the same power that's at work in Jesus now becomes the same power that's at work in me. The power of God inside of me. The power of God's Spirit when I have faith and belief. And so it's no wonder that Peter, the same one who looked into that tomb, would call us not only to place our hope on resurrection, but then call us to live as people who placed hope on resurrection. And he uses a word that isn't often too fond in our own minds, but he says as obedient ones, as trusting ones, as ones who believe that if God made life, he knows best how to live it and live that way. If God had the power to overcome death, then he is legit enough for me to listen to and follow because he's proven his love for me in Jesus. See, it changes how I live my life. And it's not a dead hope. It becomes a living hope. And so Peter doesn't stop there. Peter takes this theme of Easter and he's coming to the close of his letter and in 1 Peter 3 he says this in verse 18 he points to resurrection in a different kind of way but he reminds us of the cross and he says for Christ also suffered for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God and put to death in the fleshly realm but made alive 
in the spiritual realm. See, because Peter is about to help us understand that if you and I are going to leave this place embracing resurrection, every one of us have to come to a place where we embrace death. But not the kind of death you may think. It's a different kind of death. It's a death of selfishness. It's a death of sin. It's a death of living life my own way. It's a death of me deciding that I'm going to be the king of my own life. It's a different kind of death. It's, a, it's another word you might want to use is just simply surrender. Trust. That if God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, He has the power to give me the strength to live as He's called me to live. To love as He's called me to love. To be loved as He's created me. To be loved. And so now Peter is going to draw on this sort of strange Old Testament story where God wiped the world out and he flooded the world and he, and he cleansed it of all the sin and the evil and the wickedness. He acted. And yet he saved eight, eight righteous, eight people who actually trusted him to be God. Noah and his family. And so Peter says this. In that state, Jesus also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that he's gone into heaven, he's at the God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and power subject to him. And so now Peter speaks of this participation in the resurrection. It's a participation in Easter, and it's this gift that God gives called baptism. And it's not because there's power in some water or there's power in your decision to do so. It's just simply what it represents. He says baptism, which corresponds to this. Baptism, which was a picture, this flood of God washing the sin away from the world with something and lifting up the righteous with something that was pointing to this beautiful gift called baptism. He says This becomes your pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus now. See, it's like Paul said in Romans 6. That for all of us who are baptized into Jesus Christ are buried with Jesus in baptism into our death. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may be raised to walk a new way of life. This is the truth that Peter is trying to help us understand. This is the power of of resurrection, and in its power because of faith, because of trust. Because I can live in a world full of Saturday nights like the disciples, and I can remember based on the promise of God, the truth of resurrection. It's the pledge of a good conscience towards Him. There's no guilt and no sin too deep and too dark that God can't free me from, that God can't cleanse me from. The question for you and me ultimately is, will you and I embrace resurrection? Will we embrace resurrection in full and complete surrender? Will we allow Easter to be the mark of our lives and not the mark of a day? It's because resurrection brings hope and it brings life. And maybe you're sitting here and maybe you're feeling a sense of conviction. You just have to know, if you you leave and and you forget everything else that happened, just know this. 
Because of resurrection, Easter offers hope that is unchanging and that is imperishable, and it's a living hope. And it's a living hope that flows from the very love of God for you. And it's a hope that can change the way you live your life if you let it, if you place faith in Jesus and believe. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, I want that hope. I want Easter to be the beginning of something new. Because it was. Then listen to Peter. Or listen to the words of Ananias. Arise. Arise. Be baptized. Have your sins washed away. Calling upon the name of the Lord. Crying out to Jesus. Crying out to Jesus for all of the hopelessness in your life. Lay it on the throne. Crying out to Jesus for all the guilt you feel. Lay it on the throne. Crying out for Jesus for a healed marriage. Lay it at the throne. Crying out for Jesus for something greater than you could ever imagine. But you have to decide. You have to choose. You have to decide whether or not you want resurrection in your life. Because it's more than a service. It's more than a sermon. It's more than a song. It's a savior. It's a Savior who is King.